It's me, Sean the Bulldog Morley, here with a fresh serving of mandatory redistribution party. Today we're talking about science, the thing that happens when you rub two test tubes together fast enough. In this world of fake news, deep political and social divisions, what we need is something beyond politics, something that can tell us what's true and what's a pack of bloody fibs. In comes science. Swaggering into shot, wearing a lab coat and a blindingly clean lanyard. Science, as pure as the undriven snow, beyond good and evil, unfettered by the grubby fingers of ideology. Or is it? Today I'm speaking with Liam Kofi Bright at the London School of Economics. He's a researcher of social epistemology, and his recent lecture, Why Do Scientists Lie?, provides a much murkier account of the supposed objectivity of scientific research. Before we go in, I'm going to awkwardly plug our Patreon. It won't be outwardly awkward because I've mastered the art of stagecraft and can hide all trace of fear. But internally, let me assure you, it's chaos in here. So we have a Patreon, and it'd be awfully sweet of you if you could ping us some coin. I'm actually going to be putting some extra material from this chat onto our Patreon exclusively, featuring a short discussion between myself and Liam about his favourite movie, Satoshi Kon's masterpiece, Millennium Actress. That's there if you want it. Do you want it? Is there. Now, on to the interview. Scientists are often seen as the beacon of hope in politics. They're implicitly evoked in the push for evidence-based policy and explicitly evoked every time someone from hashtag FBPE Twitter <laughs> announces that Brian Cox can still save Brexit. <laughs> That's because science and scientists are often seen as being beyond politics. The scientific method means that they've got this way of tapping into objectivity so the conclusions and the outcomes of their research are not muddied by ideology however you may have some reasons to say why this might not be quite so simple yeah i mean i think it's uh sort of a complicated thing to talk about how prevalent social ideologies relate to scientific research but it's definitely not the case that the one is just independent of the other so um i think what kind of brought us together today was you saw a lecture I gave um, at Foyle's bookshop, which was about, uh, it's called like, why do scientists lie? <laughs> and so it was about what it is internal to the kind of incentives of science, which ends up making some scientists commit fraud. And kind of the puzzle that I, even the way I set up talking about ideology, I set it up in a sort of ideological way, right? Uh, what I said was something like, if you've got a PhD in many of the sciences, you could probably be doing so which earns you more money than going into mm -hmm. science. So if you were like that much of a mercenary, why do this thing, right? You don't have to be an academic. Go make money in the city. The fact that they don't, the normal explanation is saying, well, they're kind of people who are sort of truth seekers. They're really interested. They're curious. They want to know how the world is, etc. But then why commit fraud, right? If you're someone who's just very curious, like why, why lie? It seems to sort of defeat the purpose of truth seeking. 
And then the story I told, which is, I think, sort of my summary of some historical and sociological work, is to do with the fact that scientists, in order to sort of make their way in this profession, because it is, after all, a profession, they need to be seen to get new publications, to get new results, to do exciting things. And that introduces a kind of race, competition between them. And it turns out that sometimes to get ahead in that race, it's tempting to lie, it's tempting to cheat. And so people fabricate data to make their results seem more exciting or just to get results before someone else could. And that introduces fraud. And so there's this kind of story about how like the internal values of science, people who just like want to do well in this profession, who just want to be scientists and get their work done out there, that can sort of becomes a competition between the scientists and that competition induces cheating. Now already there's some kind of link to dominant social ideologies there because what's happening is the ways in which this functions as a competition, as a kind of meritocracy, kind of perverts the real purpose of the activity, if you think truth-seeking is the real purpose of the activity, perhaps, right? So that's one story you could tell. But I also think, and this is kind of another strand which I didn't discuss as much in that lecture, that there's this other more nefarious or more troubling ways in which um, the way we've arranged society, sort of a, a capitalist society where there are some people with a lot of incentive to get us to believe things that will get us to buy their products, regardless of whether those things are true, ends up sort of introducing lies, corruption, misbehavior into science. And so here I'm sort of working from a story which was first made famous by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway, in their book, Merchants of Doubt. And they were looking at how it was that the tobacco industry managed to hold up research into the ways in which smoking causes cancer. And, you know, pretty quickly they realized that these, these companies, that they couldn't just directly take on the scientific consensus. Science is like too well socially respected for like the kind of things you're responding mm-hmm. to. It's too well socially respected to just say, ignore the science, keep smoking. That's not going to work. So they hired consultants who had a much more clever plan. Here's what those consultants did. They identified scientists who were trying their best to do research into the causal effects of smoking, who were you, but who were actually using unreliable methods, methods which were less likely to get the truth. They funded those methods. They funded those scientists. And whenever those people got results, or in fact, whenever any results came out which suggested no link, they advertised those results everywhere. They'd go to doctors, they'd give them things, and they would say that we're just interested in the science, we're interested mm-hmm. in the debate, we just want to know what's true because we're a concerned ethical company. But all of the time, without sort of inducing, well, actually, they did get some people who just lied directly, but mm-hmm. in the many cases, without lying directly, without needing to do that, they just relied on the fact that cutting-edge science is an unreliable thing. Mm-hmm. People have a tendency to place way too much trust in the latest result they've read. And so you could just find the results which were getting the wrong answer, find the studies which kind of weren't quite as good, fund those, advertise the results of those, and you could create the impression that there was a big scientific debate here and who can even say what the effects of smoking are. Mm -hmm. And just in general, without needing to get scientists to lie, but just relying on the fact that they could pick and choose what scientific results to advertise and spread um, and what to fund. So there's a key way in which they could convert their financial power, the kind of power which capitalism gives them, into a, a source of epistemic power, a power of what knowledge was generated. They, they could do this, and in that way, they massively held back the scientific consensus, mm-hmm. and they massively held back public debate. And the reason Oreskes and Conway are so interested in this is because it turns out if you see, it's literally the very same companies using the very same tactics are mm-hmm. doing that same thing in climate science now. And so, you know, 
there's a there's a really direct way in which the way we've arranged society to give some people power and to give those people power which is sort of directly tied to their ability to keep selling us a product be it oil be it cigarettes corrupt science in a way like it prevents mm-hmm. us from being able to sort of reliably discover things and share those results about the world and it means that you can't just take at face value someone saying well you know here's a study it shows mm-hmm. x party you shouldn't do that anyway science is a chancy process but also in particular you have to look at who's showing you that study and why because people can selectively and cleverly do that so as to systematically mislead you and so not only are there kind of internal pressures within science which can lead to lies fraud deception but there are also kind of the ways in which science is embedded in a capitalist society create new ways for misinformation of a sense of to spread. And I guess, especially the second example helps clarify what it is, especially that I'm talking about with the influence of ideology on the sciences. It's not that the scientists themselves have this particular agenda they're trying to fulfill. It's that the structures that work onto sciences, that there are... There are powerful organisations that are themselves quite ideological and political that then can manipulate the sciences, whether it's they're a capitalist corporation that wants to try and make tobacco seem safe, or in the other instance, it's how they want to create competition in all areas of public life. And that competition creates bad science or falsified results. Yeah, so certainly this is a kind of, exactly as you say, a prime example of the ways in which you know, science is embedded in a broader social structure and how that social structure is is affecting what science gets done. The, you said kind of, the so what I would sort of take a bit of issue for the way you phrase one of those points, which is the way people want to create competition in all areas of life. Because that suggests a degree of external imposition, mm-hmm. which might not be quite the right model here. It's, it's complicated. Firstly, you know, there's the, the institutional structure of science has had its own evolution and that evolution did give rise to this kind of forces. And secondly, you know, the scientists themselves are people who are brought up before being scientists, they're people in the society that they're from. And very often in today's society and in the recent past, in many places, that society has been one where there's a kind of background ideology of of meritocracy, of rewards being correctly allocated by competition. And so like no one needs to impose that on us. Like we do that to ourselves. We can't we come to the game of that already, that already seeming like a natural way to do things. And so you know, in such, so it can happen that the things like the RAF, which I think actually comes from, like, ultimately is from Thatcher. Like, mm-hmm. so you can get that kind of external imposition, but it would undersell our own, I mean, complicity sounds more nefarious than I mean, but it would undersell our own involvement in these social structures. Yeah, you don't get it on day one of being a scientist. You get it from day one of being a person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, it's still feels like it might be a bit more of a chicken and egg thing to talk about whether it's an imposition, but it does feel like, you know, I like to believe that everyone's born completely pure. (laughs) (laughs) Everything that happens to them then is an imposition on them. Um, I, you know, I just think I was born a fundamentally (laughs) bad person and like I've only got worse. And so I guess I have a different model of people. Mm, Okay. So that's like a real fundamental (laughs) disagreement. (laughs) For me, babies are just pure and I can't blame them for neoliberalism. <laughs> I, I just I just want to get this on record. I hope all of your listeners and viewers that are podcast people. Victims. They can view it. There'll be like a progress okay, bar. Okay, they can so look at that. All the people looking at the progress bar right now, I just want them to know I hate babies and I blame them for all of our social ills. Okay. So. I don't think that's like a thing we can surmount within this. That's outside the scope of this. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Feels like an, uh, an unbeatable barrier between the two of us that... 
But I know what you mean. Like, it's not that um, neoliberalism came in and suddenly it warped everything as well. Like, I think there's loads of stories that go back to Victorian scientists of one-upping each other and making stuff up to impress the Royal Academy. Oh, no, I mean, absolutely. So you can find from Renaissance scientists, they would send early results in coded letters to people they trusted on the grounds that if anyone else tried to come out and say they got there first, they would send the cipher along. Right. So I had it the first time. So, you know, it, re- it really, like, the sense in which scientists were competing to to be impressive in each other's mm-hmm. eyes or the eyes of broader society goes back a long way. Now, but of course, even that is not unrelated. This, as you said, it's a chicken-egg problem. You know, a lot of radioactive scientists were in some ways competing for work amongst aristocrats yeah. they, who, from whom they needed funding. So they needed to be seen to be impressive in order to continue their research. Mm-hmm. And so... Really, it's just the distinction between internal forces and external forces is very blurred. And it's not mm-hmm. going to be a sharp distinction. It, but it's just to say that kind of it's not all outside agents in some basic yeah. sense, setting aside the problem of original sin. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, on, on top of that, like that has to be acknowledged to get a true picture of what's happened. But we have also seen in the last few decades the increased um, businessification of universities with the, like the UCU strikes have just started up again now. So there also is this element that um, the rules that that govern business and business-style competition are increasingly governing how the universities and the academia is run. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, and this for a number of reasons. Firstly, things like the research excellence framework, like the the means of assessing which encourage um, competition between people in these kind of ways, I think we're only going to see more of that in the near future. Secondly, as state support for the sciences withdraws in much of the Western world, what we're seeing is that you have to to compete for industry funding to get anything done, and that is a very direct and literal kind of businessification of this research. In fact, actually, industry isn't even stepping up that much because they've been leeching off the state for a long time. Mm -hmm. So... In fact, what we're probably going to just get is less science, all things considered. And so, yeah, like we are really seeing in many ways a kind of intensification of the forces, which I think led to these problems. What's more, as I just mentioned in that kind of the tobacco strategy, uh, one thing one thing that relied upon was a means of quickly disseminating um, results of a certain kind, their favoured results, to doctors or audiences who might be interested to learn that smoking might be safe after all. And as new communications technologies have come on the market, and as those new communications technologies are often directly tied, like the more, you know, you can buy advertising space on Facebook, you can promote your tweets, as there's a way of directly converting financial power into ability to promote through social media. Those strategies for spreading misinformation via, like, in some sense, genuinely scientific research they're being enabled by a current technology. And um, so there's a book by Kaylin O'Connor and Jim Weverall called The Misinformation Age, which is about that. And so the conditions which enabled the tobacco strategy have only become to characterize our situation ever more, partly because we're more reliant on industry funding um, and partly because the means they have to spread misinformation more efficiently and more targetedly have only got better. So we might reach the point where for something to be true, there has to be someone who wants it to be true to fund the research to prove that it's true. Well, so that's going to get to complex matters of what one thinks truth is. Yeah, but I shouldn't it, have said that word. Yeah, no, you're, you're in a philosopher's office. I think we have to duel now. But um, it's certainly going to be the case that for something, increasingly one might worry that for something to become known or to become 
information publicly accessible, it has to be the case that someone had a reasonable chance of predicting in advance that they'd want the public to know about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's a very dangerous situation for science to be in. Like you want, you really kind of want to break the link between prior anticipation of something being true and interesting to antecedently powerful people and it being the kind of thing which you can discover if it's true. Because if you don't break that link, then you know, just the power of science to tell us things which are genuinely novel and also to disrupt stated truths, which, you know, um, prop up hierarchies, disrupt things which are taken to be true, which prop up hierarchies, which perhaps deserve not to be propped up, it will be really diminished. And so a certain kind of enlightenment ideal for science will be sort of really, is being really practically undermined by the way we actually fund science and distribute results. And especially with the second set, the the corporate interests funding certain sciences that almost seems of the two kinds the one where the competition and incentives require people to create just sexy exciting made-up claims as fast as, as humanly possible that seems like it would just come with like randomness you know people just want to get anything that's headline grabbing but with the corporate interests it's only going to be things which you just expect to actually be false or harmful because if it was just true then science would just prove it on its own and they wouldn't need to cherry pick yeah, the cases where they're going to feel the need to engage the tobacco strategy are exactly the cases where they don't think the research is going mm-hmm. that way. You know, I don't think I've seen anyone explicitly make that point before. Write this up, you can publish it. <laughs> but, um, but like, yes, right? So there's a certain kind of like inbuilt anti-truth bias to this kind of corporate strategy. You know, which you're right. Actually, one of the things I've explored in my research um, about fraud and science is that first sort, the kind of the incentive structure. It's funny, it doesn't necessarily... One of the things I've argued is it doesn't really solve the problem if you make scientists less concerned about glory for glory's sake mm-hmm. and instead make them concerned of like, I just want to ensure that people know the truth. The reason it doesn't solve the problem is because sometimes you might think by committing by me committing fraud, I can get more people to believe the truth. Like, okay, I'm pretty sure this is the case. My immediate data failed to support it, but that's because something went wrong in this experiment. Fudge the data and I will support what's really true and thus um, get things out there. And in fact, even if you're just a credit seeker, you might still reason that way because you think, I don't want to get shown up by later research. (laughs) Whatever my fraudulent results say, they better be something which later researchers will also find to be true. And so there's some pressure for me actually when committing that kind of fraud. And it is fraud. I'm still fudging the data, but still ultimately to support things which in the end I expect to be true. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, as you say, the tobacco strategy, off way around. Like, yeah. it's all my incentive is to say things which aren't true. Yeah, there's good fraud and bad fraud. (laughs) (laughs) I just want anyone assessing my tenure to know I did not agree to that. My laughing was (laughs) laughing at how ridiculous the idea was. Came from me, and uh, Liam was frowning throughout. (laughs) I'm just doing that anyway, but it happened to be meaningful in this case. Yeah, I started to convey something at that moment. In your opinion, are these things bad because falsehoods are being populated, or is it bad because... Are there a particular kind of falsehood? Do we want to say that we're just fighting for the pure search for truth? Or is it specifically because it's about hierarchy and an imbalance of power that is distorting truth to favour certain powers? I mean, I I think I'm sort of idealistic enough to say both. Mm -hmm. Um, I think genuinely, it's it's complicated, right? I, I think part of the process of research for it to be genuine research is you have to accept that very often we'll be wrong. Like the nature of new research is we'll put ideas out there, frequently they'll just be false, and we have to learn that by doing the inquiry. And I'm okay with that. And in fact, one of the things I really, you know, a personal mission of mine when doing kind of science communication things is 
I really want more people to actually take a more wary or skeptical eye of new research. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not because new research is bad, but just because you shouldn't expect new research to say true things. You know, there's that saying, right, that if you never miss an airplane, you're spending too long in airports. Mm-hmm. And, like, and if new research is never wrong, then we're not doing daring enough research. And it's the same kind of reasoning in both cases. It's not like I have a problem with falsehood per se. What I have a problem with is saying false things because without trying to do better. Like, without, like saying false things because you're trying to say false things rather than saying false things because you tried your best to say the mm-hmm. truth and it just went wrong. And in the case of her fudging the data, like where I know I'm saying something false and yet I'm choosing to do it. And also the tobacco strategy, which is a little bit more complicated, right? Because what I'm doing with tobacco strategy is technically I'm like funding earnest research, but only because I suspect it will mislead people mm-hmm. in the long run. What's going wrong there is we're not even trying to dis- discover the truth. We are trying in the one case to, to get ahead in our career and in the other case to um, promote an ideologically or financially convenient falsehood. So I do object that into its, unto itself. But also, there is something extra objectionable about the tobacco strategy. I mean, they were lying for the sake of killing people, right? I mean, in mm-hmm. the end, that's what they were doing. They were trying to sell people poison, and they were trying to deceive those people as to what the fact that they were buying poison. And in the case of the climate strategy, they're upholding hierarchies based on the exploitation of res- these resources, which is, I mean, just kind of kill us all, which, which is like, it's just deeply bad for so many reasons that kind of, in addition to my kind of earnest, I like science kind of attitude, I, there's just this kind of horror that the particular lies they're telling are lies which are so deeply consequential. I was going to say for human happiness, but it undersells it for the happiness of sentient mm. beings. That it's it's just horrifying. Um, and so honestly, I just have both of those objections. You might also think as well, in the case of tobacco strategy, it's not just objectionable that they did it, it's objectionable that they could do it. Why are there these people who have such vast resources held in such a way that there's like directly incentivized to ensure that the rest of us don't really understand the way those resources work and the way that we interact with them as, as, as corporations? Like that just, it shouldn't be, a, no one should be able to be sort of like buy out a scientific field, essentially. Mm. And yet it turned out tobacco companies were. I mean, they were just able to sort of just buy out cancer research for a long time in the 50s. Now, of course, you know, ultimately they lost, but they were able to hold back that consensus forming for decades. Like, no one should be able to do that. Like, there just shouldn't be anyone who has the ability and the incentive to to buy out a scientific field and use it to promote death for their own enrichment. And so it's not just that they do it, but that they can do it, which I object to. Something that always strikes me reading about this stuff as someone who's like completely external to the academic world, just sort of peering in through windows every now and again, is that you'd think of all the areas, if scientists and academics are susceptible to this, what chance do any of the rest of us have? You know, uh, back in the day, in early days of British science, I'm thinking of Boyle and the air pump experiments in the 17th century. One of the reasons that they the group of scientists that were gathered around him had the rule that you had to be a gentleman to be a scientist. Partly, of course, because of snobbery, sexism, classism, and all those things. But partly they thought because only a gentleman wasn't dependent on other people mm-hmm. for their for their well-being, and so couldn't be, couldn't be made to lie. And science relies on trust in a certain kind of way, because you have to believe that your results, you did experiment, etc. I think it's very, very good, extremely good, I wouldn't be here, that we've moved away from the model. Um, you have to be a gentleman to do science. 
But basically, any model which doesn't have that is going to be vulnerable to this. Mm-hmm. The academy has some protections because we have our own institutional structures. We have our own culture with its own internal sense of what's good and bad. And that provides some protection. But in the end, we are subject to state funding. And that allows things like the REF to change mm-hmm. how we behave. And we're very vulnerable to... We need industry funding for many fields. Not my own, I guess, that much. But for many fields, they do. And more than just that, as mentioned, we all... To quote the Joker, I think, we were all raised in a society. And... <laughs> I think he says that. I don't know. I'm glad Parasite won. But like, I, you know, we're all raised society, which kind of inculcates us into thinking a certain kind of way, which mm. can make many of these actually quite harmful things seem just natural. And so we're relatively protected because the structure of the academy just gives us our own space and our own resources, which mm. allows us to fend these things off. But we're not that protected. And we're never going to be so long as you still need money to, you know as long as we're not in the star trek future where we're just post scarcity and you don't you're not dependent on the resources of the rich and the powerful to get stuff done and i guess i've got a pet theory that in david graeber's fragments of an anarchist anthropology he says that like marxist ideas and a lot of critical theory ideas are represented quite a lot in the academy but broadly speaking academics don't take seriously anarchist ideas and that may be why there's not that um there's not the same mistrust of hierarchies and power hierarchy, because I think to be an academic, you have to be institutionalized. You probably don't have an academic job mm. unless at some point in your life you've done pretty well at navigating deeply hierarchical institutions yeah. and persuading people to let you get one step up the ladder. And so the kind of suspicion of large bureaucratic institutions, which is presumably one source of many people being anarchists, like, you know, at some point you persuaded someone to give you a PhD, right? So you you, yeah. you have to be able to interact with those in some way. And so, yeah, I'm sure that's part of the, what's yeah. going on there. In order to be like incentivized to go into it or just to like <laughs> survive in it, you must on some level think that these large institutional bureaucratic organizations can't be like evil, right? You have to learn to live within the boundaries of them. You know, I mean, I guess that's complicated, right? Because, you know, some people, some kind of strand of like DIY anarchism people sort of do sort of quasi drop out of the institutions of mainstream society. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are people who, uh, you know, retain anarchist convictions, but sort of go on in various institutions of everyday life. And they make their peace somehow, and I don't see why they couldn't make their peace with the academy mm. as much as anywhere else. But, you know, I do know some people in the academy with anarchist sympathies. But yeah, I, I just guess that probably there's always a kind of call to like, this is not what I should be doing with my life. Yeah. I, well, like I think that at some point the friction will get like, once you're a doctor anarchist, you'll be like, well, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do I have a title? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, you can always, you can always be a hypocrite. I mean, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's always a route that's open to all of us. <laughs> have you tried hypocrisy? Yeah, it, is, it is the path of least resistance. <laughs> <laughs> but underneath all of this, we're not like, we're not knocking the scientific method, right? This is all, it's all the extra stuff that seems to deviate away people from the, from the path of truth-seeking. What I focus on in my research is just how deeply intertwined all of these things are, right? Like, and in just the same way, in kind of the, the competition and meanness of, of the market in broader life has all sorts of bad effects, but it, you know, if you're a orthodox Marxist, it has some effects, which you think are good effects in terms of encouraging production and technological innovation and things like that. And likewise within the academy, like that competition, which I really do think in, produces much fraud, it's had good effects in terms of getting scientists to share their results. It seems that one thing it does encourage is 
scientists who might otherwise be inclined to hold the results for themselves to share it early and share it often. And it has some good effects in terms of encouraging people to do novel research, because one thing that might be really tempting if you were just seeking the truth is you think, well, I should just use whatever the most reliable methods are, right? Because I want to find out what's true. But that's actually bad for science as a whole because we don't want too much homogeneity. We want people to try out different ways of doing things. And one of the nice things about the competition element of science is it introduces the following kind of temptation. If I'm the 99th person using the most reliable method and you know everyone else has a head start on me, and I'm a new PhD, and it's not, not only do people have a head start on me, but it's, you know, all of the smartest thinkers of the last generation have been doing this for decades now. There's a strong temptation for me to think that even if that is the best way of going about things, I will never be the one who gets there first if I try and use that method. I should try something new, not because I think it's the most reliable way of getting at the truth, but just because I have some chance of being the first one, you know, getting results before other people, or getting exciting new results if I do things that way. And you know that does seem to be something which, as far as we can tell, is brought about by that competitive element. And so, you know, I, I don't say this because I'm a particular fan of that competitive element. In fact, I think we should stop using it to distribute funding. I'm, I, I largely think we should reduce its role in scientific life. But it's just very complicated. It's like hard to extricate science. There's not like a pure science outside of this. It's deeply intertwined of all of the things we do, and it's deep and it's shaping what we do in both good and bad ways. I think we can do better. I mean, this is just like in broader life. I think we can do better than the the chaos and the meanness of the market in general, but it's tough and it's very hard to sort of extricate like a pure mode of interaction underneath that market-induced competition. I really like that idea of science being almost like a neural network of people just doing random things and just hoping it works. But how can you think that the idea of novelness and its relationship with like innovation and research, why would that diminish in a non-competitive environment? Why would people's not, let's say that my career is not affected by this, someone's trying this, why would I just not find that not a good idea just to do what that person's doing? Because that's not as interesting, it's already happening. I'll do something else for non-competitive reasons. So it's not that it couldn't happen. It just turns out to be a bit complicated to think of why. You have to sort of start talking in more detail of what you imagine the person is like who is motivated by factors other than the, kind mm. of the, the seeking credit or glory or the esteem of their peers through getting fancy new results. So if what you imagine that person is doing is... They just want to make use of whatever theories and methods are available to them, which are most likely to yield the correct answer on the problems they're interested in. Then that really is going to be homogenizing because all of their evidence about what theories and methods are best is going to be when they look around at their peers and see what mm. seems to be working with them. And there's going to be temptation for them to use whatever method worked last or whatever they're seeing in their environment seems to be the most effective or something like that. And that, it turns out, when we look at that, induces homogeneity. You could imagine, though, that the person who is the non-competitive truth seeker, what they're instead motivated by is a kind of altruistic thing, where it's not that I want to be the one who gets the truth. Rather, I just want to ensure that this community as a whole is as effective at eventually reaching the true answer in some way. Now, that person really might reason the way you suggest. They look at what's going on and they say, like, okay, look, there's all this good research going on over there. Probably that's the best way to do things. But on the whole, we'll do better if someone tries out mm -hmm. the new path and just goes and looks over there. Now, that could work. It just turns out, like, that is that requires the scientist, the individual scientist, to be, like, really well-informed and really good at sort of working out where the next person's needed. That's difficult, like, um, to, to do. I mean, it's difficult to do efficiently. You can always just look and say, that's crowded up over there. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult to work out sort of where's the best place for you to go mm -hmm. in order to seek the communal good. Um, just trying out new things because it might work and 
you know, who knows, some chance is better than no chance. That's relatively computationally easy. You just need mm-hmm. to look around and see what else aren't people doing. Okay, I'll do that. Uh, now, finally, I guess you could also imagine someone who's just a bit of a chaos dragon and just mm-hmm. looks at the world um, and says, like, I just want to do new things because they're new. Mm. That person is probably great. And there probably actually are a lot of people like that in real life. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Nutty professor. Nutty professor style. <laughs> just, I just want to do it because other people aren't doing it. And yeah. it's just like, coordinating against them. Um, I guess that could work. But I just think we probably can't bet the social institution of science on finding enough people yeah. who are like deeply anti-conformist in that kind of way. Just the wacky scientists who are just asking for endless funding to yeah, yeah. reanimate a corpse despite yeah. having no results so far. <laughs> and also there's a lot of like quite ethical questions about whether we want this. <laughs> Do we yeah. want the outcomes of this research? Yeah, exactly. The it's, villagers are not happy. <laughs> it's like of like, you know, of the of the hundred people who uh, tell you they're going to be the next Doc Brown and invent time travel, mm. you know, statistically, a hundred of them are fraudsters yeah. <laughs> or just like totally wrong, if not consciously fraudsters. And, so, and also, there needs to like there needs to be a big ethics panel on it before we get time travel. Oh yeah, I no. think that would be a massive social problem. <laughs> T- tell the truth, I am actually most of all aesthetically opposed to time travel. I just mentioned Back to the Future. And that's misleading. Most time travel fiction is bad, and I think that just shows that it would make the world ugly and boring if we had time travel. And so I'm opposed to it. Do you ever think that there... I mean, we're talking about all these sci-fi examples, but in terms of the quest for truth, would you ever accept that there is something true that could be proven that shouldn't be released? Is always taking everything that's true and making it as public as possible always the best course of action? I mean, I, I think I side with the scientific community in thinking the answer to that is no, there are some things which are a bad idea. And the reason I think I'm siding with the scientific community now is there was a real life case of this, which is somebody worked out a way to cheaply weaponize the common cold um, and published it. And basically there was a scientific outcry and they were forced to retract the publication and scrub it from the internet as best they could. And that's just because people thought it probably wasn't a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, indeed, it may be the things you've said here are true. I don't know. But even if they are true, there's no real interest in that thing and there's only bad consequences. And so I largely agree with the Zionist community's reaction in that case. And so apparently I think there are some things which... My like instantaneous reaction as like the podcast host was like, "How do you weaponize a common cold?" And I'm like, "Actually, no, actually, no. Wait, wait, don't, don't tell me." This is the one thing I didn't want to happen. Yeah, this is the one thing I didn't want coming to this office was that we disseminate instructions for biological warfare. That's the one note I had. <laughs> do not achieve this every time, but. but uh, yeah, so it's horrible because once you even hear, once you even hear that that's possible, you're like, I'd love to know. Like, yeah. I want that information. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure scrubbing things from the internet is hard, and so a way back machine. Yeah, if anyone, <laughs> <laughs> anyone listening for this podcast wants to know, then you know, off you go. Then keep it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think you can get things which really it's just it's dangerous, and it, there's no particular reason to anticipate anything good comes out of it and you know and i also think this scales down i mean that's the case because where it's plausibly the kind of thing you might do scientific inquiry in people get rather poncy about this like truth for truth's sake stuff but honestly someone who goes around and constantly reminds their friends of all of the flaws they have which they're most like 
insecure about. You're not a brave truth seeker. You're just a wanker, right? Like, mm-hmm. and and so it, there's, there's just a sense in which I think we all kind of acknowledge in our day to day life that just because something's true, that does not mean there's a value to saying mm-hmm. it. And I don't really see any reason to reverse that in the case of science. So here we've we've got this big analysis of all the problems that can affect how we'd ideally like science to function and the social role we'd like it to play. But I don't know if I've got a picture in my mind beyond like philosopher kings or gentlemen <laughs> scientists of what like an uninhibited scientific community would look or feel like. I've looked at a few things and I think to my mind, one of the main things which clutches on a lot of the issues we've discussed would be much more actually random allocation of funding. One of the Big problems in both the sources we just mentioned was competition inducing some bad behavior and the ability of uh, outside sources to targetedly direct funding to people they particularly want to promote. Randomization breaks both of those links. It just gets rid of the, the way the grant cycle works right now in science, which we haven't gone into detail on, but basically it's another kind of meritocratic competition and it can induce a lot of bad behavior. Not quite the same bad behavior, but a lot of bad behavior. And it can also allow, if depending on who's judging who wins the grant competition, it can allow the targeted direction of funding towards um, sources which turn out to be unreliable and allow for sort of the implementation of the tobacco strategy. I would basically want to just prevent industry funding of science. I, I largely just think that's been a bad thing and that should be like we should take that under national or social control. And then the way we should make use of our social control should be to implement lotteries and probably have more smaller grants going to randomly allocated sources. In general, actually, and this kind of matches, I think a lot more things should be random. Um, I'm in general a fan of randomizing more stuff. But in the case of science in particular, I think it would solve a bunch of the problems we've discussed already. Randomness feels like such a surprising solution. I have in my head that like science is full of loads and loads of people doing very, very um, unimportant, <laughs> like very idiosyncratic work. Like everything I read from the Ig Nobel Prizes. <laughs> if you're not aware of that, Ig Nobel Prizes is like the joke Nobel Prizes for people who have done work that is like true and correct. They've worked something out. It's just not clear how it will help society. Like a guy who managed to suspend uh, a frog in a metal pole, so it was sort of flying, and people went, "That's that." You've done it. <laughs> Great work. So do not think that, like, wouldn't it be a real shame if, like, this cancer research didn't get funded, but then another amphibian flying around project got all the money and people went, well, this is just the best system that we can come up with. Well, so for one thing, um, in terms of expectation, it's highly unlikely a lottery would give all our money to <laughs> the flying frog. Person. The lottery's awarded all <laughs> 1,000 grants <laughs> to the Flying Frog Foundation. So, let's just... <laughs> <laughs> I think we could probably be cool on that one. Yeah. Um, uh, for another thing, like one of the actual problems with the current way we distribute funding, just to bring up a new point, I'm sorry, but is it turns out we're actually not very good at anticipating what's going to be a, a good source of research or not. So, so, you know, if we already knew what was going to work, we wouldn't call it research, right? Um, and so I think we're sort of almost de facto doing a, a quasi lottery now with some perturbation for prior degree of fame making a difference. But we have a sort of ideology of meritocracy built up around it. Like, if we're going to do a lottery, I mean, yeah, here's me, my love of truth coming back again. If we're doing a lottery anyway, we may as well just be honest about the fact we're doing a lottery, because I think de facto that's what, often what we're doing. Thirdly, um, and this is related to us not being good at anticipating what's going to work, I think we actually do often fail to anticipate just how productive certain lines of research are going to be in ways which, like, if we just sort of 
allowed us to better tap into all of the weird ideas out there. Most of them would probably be bunk, but when you win, you win big. And like it can make up for, I think, on yeah. average, the losses. And finally, just the, the boring thing is, we can also have, of course, area lotteries. So we can say, okay, we've got X much money for cancer research. Mm-hmm. And so we're only filtering we're going to do is, are you a passable cancer research project? Mm-hmm. And if you pass some minimal things, such as you're on topic, we'll, we'll put you in the lottery. So we can always, of course, use this to still ensure within the topic gets covered, if it's a special social interest. I'm in. You're in. <laughs> Good. So what, I, what I'm doing actually is a series of podcasts. So it's got to persuade like every podcaster in the UK. Yeah. That'll be it. That'll full, be. full dissemination of the funding lottery. Yes, that's that's the plan. And Convince everyone who's not directly relevant to <laughs> to establishing it. Um, you know, I'm, I think ideas bubble up from the bottom mm-hmm. and this is the way they bubble up. So um, that, that would be what I, that'd be sort of one thing which I think would be a huge feature of our uh, more just science. I guess as part of that, I mentioned, I would personally massively curtail the role of industry funding. Mm. I'd want that to be matched by an increase in social funding, um, because if you were just to curtail, it might be a bit of a disaster. Of course, one should worry about that a bit, right? Because putting it cynically, I have enough anarchist sympathies to say, don't worry, we'll just give the state all power over Mm -hmm. what we'll learn is true or not. One might have worries about that, and those might be legitimate worries. So you need to be very careful about how any scheme along those lines was managed, because at least industry funding achieves it such that there are multiple capitalists who might hate each other competing for who's who they're mm-hmm. going to champion, and that introduces some diversity. But of course, where they have shared class interests, that's not good enough. But um, in any case, like I do want some degree of taking away industry control and some degree of socialization, but with some clever localization scheme, which, you know, I just can't fit in here, but I'm sure I have, <laughs> to ensure that it's not too much centralization there. And then I think other things would be kind of internal to the culture of science, like science and not just science, but the academy in general is a very elitist and demographically quite narrow place. And probably broadening social participation in science would be good, both for people who would have an opportunity to take part in the activity, but also good for like getting more people involved, having more of a variety of different voices seeing what perspectives might seem significant to a broader range of people and things like that. All of those things, I think, are both good socially and politically and also good for science as science. So there you go. A broader base with more social control of funding and more randomization would be my idea of a good science. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. If you want to help the podcast, you can always tell a friend, say something positive about it online, or memorise all the show descriptions and episode titles in order and insist on bringing that out as a party trick whenever you're in the same room as more than three people. It all goes towards a good cause.